Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut has made significant strides to reduce homelessness in our state, but challenges remain that contribute to housing instability. A lack of affordable housing is a big factor. A report by the State Department of Housing says Connecticut has a shortage of 86,000 affordable rental units. Coming up, where we live, we talk about this, including the need for more multifamily homes in communities outside of the state's major cities. Now, my first guest has experience working on this issue. She's the former first select woman of Darien, and then she became the state's first housing commissioner. Now, Yvonne Klein is the nonprofit CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Yvonne, welcome to the show. Morning, Lucy. Happy to be here. Congratulations on your appointment. I understand you were interim before uh, being announced as the permanent CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. So I wanted to begin because I mentioned uh, you were a former housing commissioner for the state. You were actually the first housing commissioner, um, the governor, Governor Malloy, creating the Department of Housing, I believe, back in in 2013. Uh, During uh, your time and his time in office, Connecticut uh, made some national distinctions and progress when we think about ending chronic homelessness among veterans. And so it's been uh, many years now uh, since that time. And now that you're in this nonprofit role, uh, what are some of the the big um, uh, areas of concern that you have when we look at homelessness in our state? Well, uh, thank you again and happy to be here with everyone this morning. Uh, You know, when we look at the work that we did uh, under uh, Governor Malloy, it certainly uh, was best. Uh, You know, we didn't have a Department of Housing for over 30 years and housing and homelessness issues essentially were in some ways were backburnered in the state of Connecticut. And uh, when the Department of Housing was created, uh, we looked at housing on a, if you would, on a spectrum. And it was a continuum from homelessness all the way up to home ownership. What are those things uh, that we can do as a state to make a difference in uh, the lives of Connecticut residents? So uh, during that time, we were very fortunate to work together uh, with with all of our providers to end veteran homelessness in the state of Connecticut. We were only one of three states to achieve that uh, distinction. And we continue to uh, be a state that has effectively ended homelessness among our veterans. And it was first ending homelessness among chronic Uh, chronically homeless veterans, and then uh, those who had acute experiences uh, with homelessness. Uh, We also, uh, during that time, worked hard to end chronic homelessness in the state, which we essentially achieved, uh, but need to get back on track 
to addressing uh, chronic homelessness within the state of Connecticut. So clearly, as our numbers decrease in the state, uh, we do see some increases among our families. So, you know, you will see us focusing on ending uh, chronic homelessness uh, among individuals. And also you'll see a focus on ending family homelessness as well as youth homelessness. Let's look more at the numbers. Uh, when we look at the data, Connecticut experienced a 32.7% decline in homelessness between 2010 and 2020. And there, but there has been a sharp increase in what's called unsheltered homelessness when we look at the pandemic, Yvonne. So talk about that, what are we seeing? So I think folks uh, know what unsheltered homelessness is, right? It's it's someone who could be living literally on the street, in a car, in a bus, in an abandoned building, um, you know, really where people should not be living. So we did during the pandemic see uh, an uptick and, um, you know, proud to say that our providers worked very hard uh, during the pandemic to keep folks uh, safe uh, during this time and were able to decompress shelters as well as uh, house people during this very difficult time. So although we did see uh, an uptick in unsheltered uh, homelessness overall, uh, we do see a decrease. Uh, you know, I think what you see is, uh, you know, you'll see numbers change over a course of time. Um, but the pandemic, as you can imagine, uh, was very difficult on folks uh, as they were uh, losing employment uh, and so on. So when you talk about people uh, that are living uh, on the streets or living somewhere, as you mentioned, that's not suitable uh, for habitation, uh, thinking about last year, there was so much federal money uh, that was able to help Connecticut and, and other states uh, with extended hotel stays to help declutter shel shelters in the pandemic. But what's happening now? Are the shelters filling up again, Yvonne? So, uh you know, clearly our shelters are, it's, it's winter, you know, we have seen, uh, you know, folks take shelter in our shelters. But yes, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the federal funding. Yes, our providers uh, were able to use that funding to, uh, as I had mentioned, and you had mentioned, to decompress the shelter so that we were able to keep uh, folks safe. Um, and and that was a very uh, successful effort done very quickly. I had taken on the interim position after all this hard work had been done uh, by our providers. So um, so that work was very successful. And during that time, we were also able to find people permanent housing. So the work continued. Uh, although it didn't continue in some cases on site, the work did continue and folks were successful and in uh, finding housing uh, for people. So as uh, you know, we do continue our work here, uh, regardless of, of, I'm going to say it this way, regardless of our numbers as, as folks uh, enter our shelters, uh, we are working with people to find them permanent housing. That, that I think, was the biggest change uh, during uh, my time as commissioner. We had a homeless response system that managed homelessness, 
And we really changed our system to become a system that focused on exiting people from homelessness. When we talk about um, the homeless, the people that are experiencing homelessness now, how many people are we talking about that are unsheltered today, Yvonne? Um, let me take a, a look at our unsheltered uh, numbers. I mean, overall, we we look when we look at some of our numbers, uh, we do see that overall we have around two thousand people who are experiencing. Uh, homelessness in the state. Uh, so what percentage of that? And I am sorry that I don't have, uh, I have, oh, I'm sorry, here, 429 uh, are unsheltered. So we have around 2,100 uh, folks who are sheltered and about 400 um, uh, and 29 folks who are unsheltered. And when we look at those numbers uh, even closer, you know, when we think about, as you mentioned earlier, the importance of helping uh, families that are experiencing homelessness and the impact on children, uh, what do we know there, Yvonne? Well, the impact is, is clearly great. Uh, when you don't have a home, you can't go to school. So what you'll see is a high absence rate among children who are homeless or living in a homeless shelter. Um, so once you have an address uh, and you have a home, uh, you know, clearly going to school, getting on the bus and going to school uh, is something more easily uh, done. So the impact is great. What we know is down the line, uh, these children continue to have challenges, whether they're learning challenges, behavioral challenges, uh, they continue to occur. So certainly uh, capturing a family before they fall into homelessness or ensuring that their homeless uh, state, if you will, is very brief, uh, certainly uh, pays off in terms of the children and their academic and personal success down the line. Uh, in 2020, data showed there were 577 children under the age of 17 uh, who were experiencing homelessness in Connecticut. Uh, we got a, a tweet from uh, someone who had mentioned that, you know, landlords do not want to rent to people without a job. And so when we think about all the factors that lead to homelessness, can you can you talk about the point that, that Stephen made and what's being done on that, that front? So, yes, and, you know, certainly we have programs where we can uh, provide, and, and there are a number of state programs uh, and uh, emergency programs that do provide uh, security deposits um, and, and help with rental assistance. So, you know, we certainly understand, but importantly, uh, helping folks who don't have employment um, but providing them with rental assistance as quickly as we can and helping them, you know, certainly that will lead to a job. I'd, I'd like to say it this way, you know, Connecticut uh, for quite a while has been a housing first state. And what that means is that we believe once you have a home, all things come. So you have a house, you now have an address that you can put on an employment application, right? You have an apartment, you have an address that you can put on an employment application. And uh, we do have rental assistance to help folks with security deposits um, 
as well as rent uh, for them to um, secure a job and then be able to pay their rent uh, in the future. We're talking about homelessness in our state here on where we live. My guest is Yvonne Klein, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Uh, She's a former housing commissioner for the state of Connecticut. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, When I was asking about um, the the ability to house uh, some individuals in hotels, uh, um, I'm sorry, motels uh, during the height of the pandemic, uh, when we think about um, that access, you know, are they still prioritized uh, to receive other services through this uh, this vetting system that you had mentioned, Yvonne? Well, it's once uh, you are in our homeless system, uh, we do assist everyone who is in our system with housing. So we have staff who works with every individual and family. So regardless, if if you became homeless during the pandemic or you were homeless prior to the pandemic and then you were hotel, uh, our providers continue to work with you until you're housed, whether it's trying to collect documents, uh, connect matching you to housing. Uh, you know, we work with you throughout that phase of um, getting you from homelessness uh, to a home. And how much is homelessness costing the state per person, per family? Well, those numbers, I have those numbers uh, from back in my commissioner days, and I think the most recent numbers that I have are from 2018. So uh, a a homeless family, if you quote unquote, keep a family homeless, it costs the state about $100,000 a year. It's, It's expensive. If you were to give that same family a housing voucher, it's about $33,000 a year. Uh, So clearly uh, there is an economic cost to the state, but also a human cost to the state or a social cost to the state. Once uh, families or individuals who are previously homeless have a home, they become part of a community, the children uh, become part of the school community and, you know, continue with their education. Uh, people grow, grow roots in a community um, and become contributors. So the outcomes are far better uh, in providing a voucher than keeping folks uh, in a, a public system uh, where they, you know, maybe cycling in and out of emergency rooms in some cases, Uh, our justice system. Uh, So we have better outcomes when we house people uh, quickly. But it is quite costly to the state. You're hearing Yvonne Klein again here on Where We Live, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. We're going to continue talking with her after the break. We're also going to hear from the executive director of a shelter in Milford. And later, affordable housing remains a big issue that needs to be addressed in Connecticut. We'll get an update from Connecticut Public's housing reporter, Camila Vallejo. That's later. You can join us, too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about homelessness in Connecticut. Later this month, the annual point in time count begins. It focuses on people living in shelters and transitional housing, also those who are unsheltered. Now, one of the emergency shelters in our state is Bethel Center in the greater Milford community. It's year-round, and it has 34 beds. But from November to April, it's a no-free shelter with an additional 40 beds, and it also operates a soup kitchen. Its executive director, joins us now on Zoom, Jennifer Paradis. Jennifer, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Before we learn about how you're helping people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, I wanted to learn a little bit about you. I understand that when you were younger, you also experienced homelessness. What would you like to share with us? Yeah, um, and and this just adds to kind of the everyday experience of, of myself as a provider, and there are so many providers out there that um, take their lived experience with them um, every day. So um, as I was growing up, a, a high school student about the age of 14, 14 and a half, um, my parents were, uh, um, uh, for, their home was foreclosed on. I, I grew up in Bloomfield. Um, and um, it, my, my parents were both working class and, um, you know, tried very desperately to, to maintain that home. And that, that became more and more difficult. Um, and when the foreclosure happened, um, you know, we all kind of went our, our separate ways, if you will. Um, I wanted to stay in school and in my community. Um, my parents um, really needed to be able to uh, uh, work and, and get back on their feet. Um, and so I, you know, went on this journey for a few years of couch surfing and um, uh, relying on my, my dear friends and the families of my friends. Um, I say that I was raised by so many moms, um, including my own, um, and, um, and my parents for, for a few years um, during my high school period uh, uh, were unsheltered. Um, I remember um, visiting my dad at work one day and, um, and seeing they, they had a van at the time and, uh, and just seeing the, the, the bed in the back of the van and, and it hit me at that time. Um, what they were experiencing, and it wasn't until later on in, in my adult life that I uh, was able to kind of process and understand um, what was happening to me at that time, too. Um, at that time, it was just the grind, <laughs> um, if you will, as a, as a high school student. Um, and then um, I, I thankfully went on to college. Um, many thanks to all those moms out there um, but uh, that helped me um, on my way. Um, but I was then, you know, one of the 15% or so um, college students who are unshel- uh, uh, homeless or housing unstable during their, their college years. And so 
worked on campus um, and um, lived on campus um, and when there were breaks or, or periods of time when school was not in session, um, you know, really struggled to, to find that stability over that period of time. Um, and so thankfully with, uh, with a degree and with a, a job, um, I was able to, to secure my first apartment after college um, and then start really processing that, that experience um, and recognizing just um, how unfortunately common it is um, for, uh, for young people um, in this state and across the country. I'm sorry that that happened to you. That's a lot to experience as a young person, but important to hear stories like yours, Jennifer, uh, thinking about how so many families are just a paycheck or life uh, situation away from experiencing homelessness. And that's why it's important to have uh, these support systems in place to help people. Um, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, what my my experience is certainly uh, certainly adds value to, to my everyday um, as, as we're doing at work at the Bethel Center. Um, and um, but it also helps to challenge uh, challenge the stereotypes that we have of families and individuals experiencing homelessness and housing instability. Um, you know, in, in my case, um, you know, I had I had two parents. They were both um, very, very hardworking individuals um, and really just trying to build wealth with home ownership um, as we are uh, kind of prescribed to do um, in this in this culture. And um, and so they, they thought they were doing everything right. Um, and so, uh, you know, really challenged the stereotypes of um, who homeless, uh, what, uh, who was impacted by homelessness, um, where and when. And, and you're so right. Um, uh, you know, we, we kind of live in a, in a fragile economic environment and it truly can happen to anyone. Um, and we are seeing that today with the pandemic. You're hearing Jennifer Paradis here on Where We Live, Executive Director of the Beth L. Center in Milford. So tell us about what you've seen at the center, especially in the last two years. Uh, there's a spike, of course, for uh, needing uh, support uh, in this pandemic. Uh, what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of starting just before the pandemic, if, if we could, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that the homeless response system is, is an emergency crisis response system. Um, you know, it, it is it is not a natural thing or normal thing for individuals, families, veterans, youth to be experiencing homelessness. Um, and so when when individuals are, that is a crisis uh, system. So um, our, our, our system is uh, kind of built uh, to respond quickly, efficiently to, to, to make uh, that, that experience for that individual or family um, rare, brief, um, and hopefully um, one time. Um, and so uh, the, why I mentioned that is kind of we were, we were operating at full capacity, full steam ahead before the pandemic. And so um, as, as this kind of overlay um, came, uh, this kind of additional um, heightened urgency um, and, um, you know, many of our programs are, are kind of modeled in, in congregate settings um, and, um, and truly not, not funded um, in, in the ways um, that uh, we would like to see in order to, to uh, ensure that these programs environmentally are safe and healthy for the individuals that are participating in them. Um, you know, we had to we had a very steep, quick um, learning curve at the very beginning of this pandemic on what we needed um, our system to have um, in terms of resources and staffing to respond. So kind of environmentally, you know, how do we make these spaces health, uh, uh, safe and healthy for our folks? Um, but but also in addition to that, um, you know, the, the pandemic really turned the lights on to just how uh, many folks were experiencing housing instability. 
um, in, in our communities and just how quickly those folks uh, uh, slipped into the homeless response system. And so um, in the greater Milford community, we certainly saw individuals who were accessing system, our system for the first time. And so had many questions around what this was, what was happening, um, uh, you know, very, very traumatic experience um, uh, to, to new households um, who for medical reasons or for employment, you know, loss of employment um, uh, or were doubled up and kind of uh, had fragile um, and unstable um, housing situations in, in the first place. Those those uh, 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 safety nets kind of came undone, and and so they they ended up um, you know at our at our front door looking for assistance. Um, and um, but what I'll what I'll say too is that there were so many individuals in our system at the very beginning of the pandemic who had been experiencing homelessness for a significant period of time, and so what we also saw were those most vulnerable continuing to be. Um, it, you know, I, I speaking about. Folks experiencing unsheltered homelessness. Um, you know, we saw increases um, in that population slightly before the pandemic, and that was only exacerbated by the by the circumstances of the pandemic. So, you know, what what we're seeing is really that it's this convergence of um, you know really needing to have um, a, a political will, legislative way, um, community support around um, uh, and commitment to ending homelessness in each and every community in Connecticut. Um, and then also this much broader um, need to address um, this work as a public health uh, uh, crisis and a public health response. Um, so, and unfortunately, we're still in this. Um, you know, we don't know kind of um, where this is, is taking us. Um, you know, we certainly have concerns and are vulnerable to, to all of the conditions um, that impact our system, things like the eviction moratorium, um, and just the ongoing um, health and wellness of our communities. Uh, you know, our, our system is vulnerable to those pieces. And Jennifer, you were talking about the, the newly homeless that the Bethel Center um, has helped or is still helping uh, because of this pandemic. Can you talk more about who, um, who we're, we're talking about here? Are they young adults? Are they senior citizens? Are we seeing more families? Or is it across uh, the board uh, from all these different um, age groups? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's it's across the board. I mean, what I'll say is that um, you know we we have a we have the emergency response system. We have those individuals who are experiencing homelessness or at the very front door of that system today. But we also have, um, and Yvonne spoke about this, uh, a kind of a, a much broader circle around that emergency response of of uh, of individuals and households that are housing unstable, that are cost burdened, whose housing expenses are um, are, to, are, are in their monthly budgets um, exceed, um, uh, you know, we say 30%, but now housing expenses are exceeding 50, 60, 70, even 80% in some cases that we see. And so um, that, that impacts some individuals kind of first, um, again, going back to those most vulnerable continue to be. So they're, they're seniors, um, uh, they're adults living with disabilities that are on fixed incomes. Um, and don't have the options of going out and, and getting another job or um, or doubling up with somebody um, and sharing uh, sharing rent. Um, and so we certainly saw um, individuals who were in that situation um, uh, and kind of making do in that situation, but how it's a house of cards. Um, uh, we certainly saw those folks too. Um, we also have a number of families throughout the state that are um, doubled up and um, in, and uh, either are in 
um, doubled up in, in apartments or homes um, or utilizing things that are considered temporary housing like hotels. Um, and so the pandemic certainly hit those households where um, landlords or property managers of these uh, uh, places um, you know, were really concerned about uh, uh, congregation of people and so, you know, kind of broke up those households. And so if you weren't on the lease um, or if you weren't current um, on, um, on on what your kind of accountability was in that in that situation, you, you know, you, you were asked to to leave. Um, and um, and so we, we certainly saw uh, uh, we, and we continue to see a lot of situations, um, unfortunately, that that um, that are like that. It really kind of comes back to what the economics of that home um, were before the pandemic and who was responsible for those. Unfortunately, we've seen way too many households that are um, have slipped into homelessness because the, of, of the death of somebody um, because of COVID-19. Maybe they were the, the primary breadwinner um, or, um, or shared the, 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 um, the expenses in the home um, or, you know, uh, kind of subsequent to, um, you know, households that uh, had to uh, um, break apart because um, they just couldn't afford to maintain the housing that they had. Um, so I'm so happy that we're having this conversation that connects homelessness to housing affordability because those are inextricably linked. Um, if you are interested and committed to ending homelessness in, in our communities, we have to be interested and committed to um, developing uh, affordable housing in our communities. Uh, Jennifer, I'm glad you made that point because you had mentioned earlier about um, also the need for legislative will. And so when we think about Milford, that's in New Haven County, right next door to Fairfield County, one of the, the wealthiest uh, parts of Connecticut and in the country, is there, um, when you think about um, affordability, uh, the ability to have more multifamily um, housing in Milford, I mean, what does that look like locally? Are people interested in that, seeing that expanded? Um, you know, that's, that's, I think, the upside of the pandemic, and you're very right um, in terms of um, the, the expenses of um, housing in our community um, in Milford, um, being that we are kind of vulnerable to, to that New York City sprawl um, and certainly saw um, prices increase um, as uh, New York City, uh, uh, as New, York, uh, New Yorkers came um, and continued to come into Connecticut. Um, and and wanted that uh, kind of uh, beautiful shoreline uh, charm, and so we, we have a lot of wonderful things to offer in our community. Um, and and what I've seen in the pandemic is is again, you know, kind of the lights coming on. You know, people kind of understanding that as uh, uh, as housing increased, uh, as housing costs increase. Um, uh, more and more folks were impacted by that and started to get concerned about their own budgets and their own ability to maintain their housing and then started asking questions about how their their parents are, or their friends' parents are maintaining housing, how their kids are able to remain in the communities that they grew up on and wanted to uh, grew up in and wanted to return to and um, and, and those other uh, groups of people that that I mentioned before. And so what, what we've seen um, and what I've seen is really a lot more organizing and interests around understanding just how you develop housing that is um, safe and stable um, and a reflection of what each community needs. Um, uh, you know, Milford is, um, you know, really considered to be, um, uh, uh, you know, an affluent community, um, and that's certainly true, but um, it's also a very diverse community that needs a diverse amount of housing stock. Um, and so, um, you know, when I talk about affordable housing, I really like to talk about that everybody, we need more housing, period. Um, right now, at this time, we have individuals who 
um, you know, like myself are, um, you know, single who, um, you know, are employed um, and uh, shopping in the same market as somebody who's coming out of our programs with a housing voucher, because there's just simply not enough um, housing diversity for everyone. Um, so we absolutely need um, those 80,000 plus affordable housing units for people who are, are on um, uh, fixed incomes and, um, you know, are, are, uh, need that stabilization of the rental market. Um, but will also help um, alleviate those uh, those burdens is to make sure that there's enough housing, um, period, um, no matter what phase of life you're in. Yvonne Klein is still with us, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Yvonne, I'd love to hear your perspective as we talk about the need also to expand affordable housing, how this is an important part of the equation to end homelessness in our state. Well, yes, and I think, uh, Lucy, you had mentioned that there's a report from the Department of Housing where we have a shortage of 86,000 uh, units of affordable housing in the state, or that's the need that we have in the state, which you know may in fact even be greater. So what we have seen and part of the work that we did at the department, and as I had mentioned earlier, was the full housing spectrum, spectrum everything from uh, working on ending homelessness to uh, creating and supporting home ownership and everything in between. So clearly uh, the pandemic as Jennifer and you have uh, pointed out that the, the pandemic certainly highlighted uh, the gaps uh, in our communities. And uh, for many years, I have been a champion and been working uh, to create more affordable housing uh, across the state and having had uh, success in that as commissioner. But there are so many things uh, that we can do as we see across all of our communities and even our wealthier communities like Darien uh, and Richfield, where we see about 30% of our population here is housing costs burden, which is which was actually very surprising to many of us to learn those kinds of facts. Um, so, you know, creating uh, incentives and certainly changing some of our zoning, uh, which we saw at the last legislative session uh, to see zoning uh, changes enacted, uh, first in a very, very long time, uh, certainly is putting us on the road uh, to creating more affordable housing across the state. I'll be talking more about that coming up here on Where We Live. Uh, when we look back at your time as first select woman in Darien, Yvonne, um, and we hear this also from other towns who talk about um, increasing affordable housing, you know, often that can be one bedroom um, apartments, uh, more suitable for the elderly than for families. And so is that somewhere that is that something that you want to see improved on uh, now that you're on the nonprofit side as this, con this conversation continues in our state, Yvonne? Well, uh, we really need uh, all size uh, bedroom homes uh, to address this uh, lack of affordable housing. Uh, so certainly here uh, in Darien, I was fortunate to support um, during the early uh, time, the expansion of what was formerly known as Allen O'Neill, uh, which is now the Heights, which also has some three bedroom units. Uh, clearly, uh, we have a need for uh, units, uh, affordable units with more than one bedroom. So we, when we look at uh, who's challenged, it's families of all sizes. 
So that's the kind of housing uh, I support in, in building uh, so that we have more choices um, uh, in affordable housing, whether it's deed restricted or, or not deed restricted. Uh, but certainly what we know are the more vibrant communities are multi-generational uh, communities so that we're attracting people of all ages, not just the elderly. I think it's, it's an easy, uh, you know, what we used to see, it's a quote unquote, easy sell to communities uh, that we, of course, you know, we want to uh, keep our folks in town who have lived here for decades and who have contributed and built our communities. Of course, we want to keep uh, our folks here uh, in our towns. But as, as they move on to a smaller uh, home, we also want to attract younger families to, to come into our towns to make sure that they're vibrant and have a variety of housing options uh, uh, from which to choose so that we can attract folks of all cultures, um, income levels, um, and ethnicities and diversity. That's Yvonne Klein, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition and Homelessness here on Where We Live. I want to thank Jennifer Paradis for joining us. She's the executive director of the Beth L. Center in Milford. We'll be sure to tweet out a link uh, to this shelter on our website if you want to learn more and also on our social media. Thank you, Jennifer, your time for your time. Thank you, Lucy. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Again, coming up, we're going to continue talking about homelessness and how it all ties to also a lack of affordable housing in our state. More after our short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we've been focused on homelessness in our state. Challenges remain that contribute to housing instability. A lack of affordable housing is a big factor. As we've mentioned on the show already, a report by the State Department of Housing says Connecticut has a shortage of 86,000 affordable rental units. For more on this, joining us now is Connecticut Public's housing reporter, Camila Vallejo. Camila, welcome back to the show. Morning, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. So we know that uh, affordable housing and zoning were uh, big topics last legislative session. A lot of controversy also uh, surrounding uh, the conversations about um, local control and making changes to zoning. So tell us more about that dynamic and what's expected uh, to come up this legislative session. What do we know? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's fair to say that there's, you know, uh, tension between the state and towns when it comes to zoning reform and its potential to boost affordable housing stock across towns. Like you mentioned, we saw that a lot the last legislative session when really uh, what it is is that some people believe um, the state should be more involved in zoning, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, should have a say in what kind of developments we have. And on the flip side, others believe that zoning should remain completely local um, because the one-size-fits-all approach doesn't meet everybody's need, given the diversity of towns that we see um, in Connecticut. And I think we're going to continue to see that um, this upcoming legislative session. And, you know, 
I'm, I'm happy to give you um, a brief overview of what we saw last legislative session and how it's still affecting us today. Um, so House Bill 6107, um, you know, passed a variety of different things. Uh, but I think two important things to highlight are the fact that it made statewide changes to the minimum parking spaces we require for new developments and how we allow accessory dwelling units or in-law apartments in our towns. Um, so at the last minute, given this tension that we're talking about, the legislature uh, included opt-out provisions uh, for towns in case, you know, in the end they didn't want to, you know, follow this. Um, and, you know, so far speaking to a handful of towns in Fairfield County, um, many have plans to opt out or have already opted out because, again, they say that, this one-size-fits-all approach just doesn't fit their needs. Camila, with this opt-out um, being permitted, you know, how does that really move the needle into you know, getting more affordable uh, housing units in communities, again, that are outside our major cities? Absolutely. Um, so I think it's too early to tell whether it's really going to move the needle, um, you know, for these both uh, mandates that I mentioned previously, towns have until 2023 to opt out. Um, so, you know, we still have some time where they, they're able to make the decision. And it's important to note that they need two thirds of their zoning board and two thirds of um, their legislative board um, to actually opt out of this. So there is some challenge uh, for towns if they aren't able to gather all those votes. Um, but, you know, even if uh, they do, in the end, opt out, I think advocates are at least saying that, you know, this statewide mandate at least inspired towns to maybe uh, look at, you know, legislation in their towns that otherwise they might have not looked at before. Let's talk more about uh, the reporting you've done on the, what affordable housing looks like right now uh, in Connecticut and the fact that for many, affordable housing is still not affordable, even with a government subsidy. Uh, you spoke to a Bridgeport resident, Dion Dwyer, who lives in public housing. Uh, this is part of what she shared with you. When I found out about it, it was through a friend. And when she told me about it, I didn't even know where to find it. Honestly, I lived on the east side of Bridgeport. It was still in Bridgeport. I just wasn't aware of it. I thought it would be a good place to start getting back on my feet, you know, something to level me out so I can provide for my kids. It might have saved me as far as not being homeless, but at the same time, I'm stuck here. So what does she mean there that she's stuck uh, in terms of where she's living now, Camila? Yeah, absolutely. So as far as her current housing situation, you know, she's been there for over 20 years. Um, and like she mentioned, it may have kept her from being homeless, um, but it's just not ideal, uh, you know, living conditions for her and her family. Uh, you know, she, she stated environmental issues. She stated maintenance issues. Uh, she stated conflict uh, with different residents that really has just... Um, you know, motiv motivated her to try to find other options. But again, we get back to that lack of options, that shortage that we're seeing across the state. Because of that very shortage, she isn't able to branch out um, to other units that are affordable to her within her budget and offer her different options. 
Uh, you know, she currently lives in Bridgeport and she would like to branch out to other areas of Fairfield County where she can find better opportunities. But given the very high cost of rent, she simply can't. Uh, we've mentioned that statistic uh, from that uh, Department of Housing report, uh, 86,000 affordable uh, housing units are needed uh, that Connecticut doesn't have at the moment. Uh, what about the data on the number of housing permits uh, issued and how that might help expand the inventory of housing, Camila? Yes, Lucy. So I think it's important to note that that nearly 90,000 unit shortage is for those who are very low income. So it's those who are zero to 30 percent, those who make zero to 30 percent area median income. Uh, What we're also seeing across the state is that there's a shortage of um, high income housing. So like Jennifer mentioned earlier, the, the need is just need for more housing, period, because you know, not having enough housing for different income bands just um, boils down to them, you know, fighting for less expensive housing and there's none to go around for everyone. Um, but then specifically looking at housing permits, you know, according to available data, uh, it shows that Connecticut permitted around 3,300 housing units last year. That's the lowest since 2011. That's raw data from the Department of Economic and Community Development. Um, And that just gives us a a glimpse of what we're going to see when the final data is out in May. Um, But in the end, you know, not enough production just continues to contribute to the shortage. And I think we're seeing that um, lack of production specifically um, due to the pandemic Uh, You know, we're seeing a labor shortage. We're seeing uh, supply chain issues. Uh, Lumber, for example, is really expensive, which is essential to new housing production. So, um, you know, we might continue to see these low numbers. And did you mean that there's a surplus of high income housing, Camila? Yes. Uh, No, sorry. There's there's a decrease in high income housing, um, according to the same data, from the Department of Housing that found that we were short uh, nearly 90,000 units for low-income residents. Uh, Yvonne Klein is still with us, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Yvonne, we have a few minutes left. Uh, you know, Camila doing a good job of giving us this overview of, of where things stand. And so, you know, again, in your new role as a Connecticut, as a leader of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness, you know, what do you want to see uh, in this legislative session to continue to, to talk about the expansion of affordable housing in our state? So focusing on affordable housing, clearly, I think we need to continue the work in supporting good uh, zoning legislation. I think uh, what we may be looking at is uh, some legislation focusing around our transit districts, uh, which would be quite quite good uh, for folks um, with, along Metro North um, and also our, our major transit lines. Uh, last year, this was something that had come up and was dropped. So, so we might see uh, some legislation focused uh, called on our transit-oriented communities, uh, which would be very exciting because the housing near transit, uh, especially multifamily housing, uh, would be key um, to uh, folks having uh, housing options. I think overall, you know, as we've seen and as Camila uh, certainly aptly reported, uh, that 
as you did, Lucy, that last year was very contentious. And what we know here in Connecticut is that we can we can end homelessness in the state of Connecticut, and we can actually address and provide more housing choice in the state of Connecticut, and uh, garnering more support across the board uh, from our all of us in the suburbs as well as our cities will create a, a more vibrant uh, Connecticut. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, I believe, under Governor Malloy. I think $1.3 billion was set aside uh, to help with expanding affordable housing. What do you want to see specifically in this administration in terms of how um, you know all- money is allocated to expand uh, housing um, f- for people who are low income or struggling, Yvonne? Well, certainly uh, there are opportunities within uh, programs uh, that the state does offer uh, to put forward incentives and funding uh, for low, low and low income housing. And, uh, you know, certainly I know uh, there have been some some challenges uh, during the pandemic, but holding a bond commission um, to ensure that the money uh, that uh, the State Department of Housing has is actually getting on the street, if you will, and these housing units being built. Uh, that's really crucial. Uh, you know, meeting with developers, as a matter of fact, just yesterday can take anywhere from three to 10 years to see fruition of a development. So the sooner we can get the funding out on the street, the sooner we can get the housing built. So uh, certainly having a robust uh, capital line item uh, with respect to the Department of Housing uh, to build housing and also supporting uh, CHAFA. Uh, CHAFA's initiatives are clearly important. And that's the CHAFA, Connecticut Housing Finance Authority. Uh, Yvonne, we'd love to have you come back. Uh, this is an important topic, uh, definitely not just uh, for one show. So we're going to continue talking about housing affordability in our state. Yvonne Klein, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Thank you for your time today. Also with us on the phone was Kamila Vajeho, Connecticut Public's housing reporter. Kamila, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.